Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed this dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Welcome back to the 430 Movie. We got our expert programmers here to curate Fantasy Theme Weeks of classic films. From 1998, film directed by Steven Soderbergh called Out of Sight. Yes! Soderbergh directs it with such a sort of confident, self-assured style. Lex Luthor in Superman. What is it about Gene Hackman that... uh... His performance, it's off the charts, but still in reality. Fiendishly gifted. 1981, Sam Raimi Opus, The Evil Dead. Oh, yes, fine choice. Sam Raimi invented entirely new ways to get shots that should not have been possible with the amount of money that he did not have. Charade. Oh, Directed by Stanley Donnan. It's a textbook screenplay. It's just effortless, and there's not a wrong note in this movie. Can't say enough great things about it. We'll be back next Friday with an all-new episode of the 430 Movie, wherever you listen to podcasts. Join us now. For the 430 Movie. The 430 Movie podcast is available weekly wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Suddenly the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away oh. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Dockerman. And we are the Inglorious Tregsperts. And we're joined today by two of my favorite Tregsperts. There's the writer, Thor, and X-Men First Class, and just a, a lovely gentleman who, who you've come to know over these last few years, Ashley Edward Miller. I, uh, I can't believe I'm here again. And beaming down from his observatory in a secret location, Somewhere in Southern California. And he got this very nautical looking beard. Gene Roddenberry would approve. It's uh it's a man full of observations. It's none other than Robert Meyer Burnett. Uh it is it is great to be here. And I I, I just like to point out, Mark, uh, that Ashley Edward Miller has his third season of Dota Dragon's Blood dropping soon. It's true, I do. Well, somebody better catch it. Oh, I'm yeah. done. <laughs> August eleventh on a Netflix. Oh my god, it is soon. Yeah. Wow. So that's, uh, if you haven't been watching on the Netflix, the, now uh, is the time to catch up. Now's the time before you cancel Netflix to um, make sure you watch all of Dota Dragon's Blood. It's third season debuting this August. Check it that's out. Right. Just don't make it look like you canceled the service because no, you no, watched no. my you show. Gotta, no, no, no. I'm just, apparently that's <laughs> right. what people are doing. 
You know, yeah. they're having a, they're canceling. I, I, I don't know. I'm not canceling my Netflix. I like my Netflix. Me, Me too. And yeah, yeah. Rob's, I, Rob's beard is very Marco Ramius. It is. Yes. He looks like he should be, you know, defecting with the Red October. When Cortez went to the New World, he burned his ships. Yeah. You remember, you know, they did the, the uh, well, anyway, I'm not going to, we're not going to start talking about Red October because that will be uh, a serpent. To, that'll be a Byzantine trail that we will never make our way back. It'll be it's like a very Star Trek movie, though. It definitely. Well, is. we've had that conversation. Of course, it, it's it's the perfect Star Trek movie. That's not a Star Trek movie. Although, is Crimson Tide or Red October a better Star Trek movie? Um, you know what, Crimson Tide is. Yeah, I'm not saying what's the better movie. I'm saying what's a better Star Trek movie. I think, I think it's Crimson, Crimson Tide, Tide too. I, I do too because you have the conflict of two men at the heart of it. You know, and whereas I, I think Red October is much more of an adventure story, a sprawling adventure tale, but but Crimson Tide, you know, has two men locked. Well, yeah. more than that, it has two men who are both right. Yes, yeah, exactly. And they are, yes. it makes it essentially at its core. And it's what's, ha- core, about what's happening between them, Star not Trek what's story. happening outside of them. Yes. Yeah. We got an interesting show for uh, the listeners at home this week. We're we're gonna you know we we we've done a bunch of interesting shows the last couple of weeks. We had the uh, the lovely um, Terry Metalis on a couple of weeks talking about Picard season three, which we're actually all very excited about. Uh, a lot of a lot of good good things in the air. For good and, reason. Yeah, and, and I, I I'm excited I about that. That's true. Um, and then um, uh, because all we were saying is give Terry a chance. <laughs> and uh, and then we got last week a really sad episode. Of course, we talked about the passing of a sci-fi legend, Greg Jean, uh, which I have to say, Darren, we got a very nice, uh, very nice response to through the interwebs. I'm I'm glad because that was uh, that was an emotional uh, episode for uh, for us, and uh, I'm glad that people got to share a little bit in in uh, his life. I kind of was like, I don't care if six people listen to this. We're doing this. This is worthwhile. We need to do this. And the response has just been, I got a bunch of emails and people reaching out and then, you know, on the Twitter and everything. So that was, uh, I'm really glad. a very nice episode, you guys. Well done. Oh, thanks, Rob. Yeah, it's important. You know, it's important to honor these sci-fi legends, you know, because they're not, they're not actors. You know, and for a lot of people, it's all about the actors. Yeah. You know, and, and for us, it's, it's, uh, it's not. <laughs> but, you know, so we thought it'd be fun to, for a little change of pace this week um, to go back to, to, the, the 1970s and talk about where fandom sort of met professionalism. Like there's something I think that people miss about, remember the next generation, they would have the um, open submission policy where anyone potentially could sell a script to start. And it was very exciting. A lot of people got their start. People like Ron Moore, you know, sold the script. Uh, people like Renee Echevarria, you know, got their big break on Star Trek. But long before that, long before Pillars Open Door, there was... You know, obviously, and Rob will let you set the table for this, but in the 70s, you know, the fanzines, the Star Trek fanzines, and a lot of these people involved in these started to publish professionally. And of course, mm-hmm. one of the people who was their mentor at the time was, you know, Frederick Paul, the great sci-fi author of the Gateway series and so many other great books, and um, was running Bantam and, and had so much success with the Star Trek IP back then that, you know, and they, and they ran out of ran out of stuff. To, to publish, you know, with the, the James Blish books and then later the Alan Dean Foster books. And it, there was a, a hunger to find new material. So who did they turn to, Rob? Well, uh, <laughs> there were two two women. You want to talk about Sondra Marshak? and Marcus? 
The women, Sondra Marshak and Myrna Colbreth, who many people know from their own Star Trek novels that they wrote later, they were uh, great purveyors of Star Trek fan fiction. And in, I believe it's 1976, they edited the very first collection. It was a collection of Star Trek short stories that was basically written by fans. And it was called Star Trek The New Voyages. And there was also Star Trek The New Voyages 2. But they compiled this. And in that particular book, there, there, were, two, there were two real standout stories. One that I've never forgotten, which is Mind Sifter. And then the other is, I think, something we would like to be talking about today called Visit to a Small Planet. Revisited. Oh, there's a yeah. weird planet. Now, Darren, Visit, Darren I gotta ask you. Small rights. It was a riff on that visit yeah. to a small planet. Darren, is it fair to say this was the splinter of the mind's eye of Star Trek, or was that Spock must die? You know, it's it's tough to say because in the Star Wars universe, there really wasn't a, a swelling of fan fiction, at least at the beginning. Right. I, but I mean, in terms of the impact of of like, wow, new stories in this universe because of course Spock must die was really not very good and no. uh this I, I feel like touched people's imagination maybe it was just me in a more profound way to a certain uh to a certain faction of fans absolutely uh I didn't discover this stuff until much later uh because I just wasn't in that in that realm I, I didn't uh, start buying the 1976 book. baby yeah yeah no I, I I was still I was still enjoying the uh the videoness of it all um, mm. but, uh, yeah, I didn't get into the books until, uh, years later. Uh, but I, I will say that, um, the creativity and the originality that, uh, these, uh, these particular group of stories showed was really a, uh, a, a faction of not having Star Trek around. And that was one of the blessings of that, you know, the vast desert of years between the original series and the motion picture. Yeah. That fandom really stepped up and filled in the blanks. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, speaking of fandom, was of course this was their follow-up to Star Trek Lives, which was a nonfiction book right. about the conventions. Right. Uh, because back then that we you know you had making of Star Trek and David Gerald's Trouble Triples and the world of Star Trek. And then they came out with Star Trek Lives, which was interesting, which really was you know the first professionally published thing about the phenomena of Star Trek fans and Star Trek conventions. Um, although there was the book about Star Trek, a magazine about Star Trek fan clubs about this time too, which was pre-Starlog. But um, I want to ask uh, Ashley, because Ashley, obviously you're a little younger than us in human years. And um, I, I got to ask you, obviously this book looms very large for us in our initial Star Trek fandom. Is it something you were familiar with or did, you know, you just learned about when we said we were going to do a show on this topic? Oh, no, no, I, I, I totally knew what this stuff was. Although I came into all of the Bantam stuff through all of the, uh, the, the, uh, the whatever the, the line was, the, the entropy effect kicked off the uh, timescape. Yes, exactly. The timescape line of, of books. Um, and I still have the entropy effect, the very first mm -hmm. edition, sitting in a place of honor on my shelf. Um, that was really how I came into so the um, pocket when, when pocket got the license. Yeah, exactly. I think the first Star Trek novel I read was the novelization of Star Trek, the motion picture. And mm. then I started reading. And then when I ran out of those, I realized that there were other books that had been published. 
so then I went back and I found these stories. Um, of course, at the time, I didn't quite process that it was fan fiction, basically, that had been published. Like that, that yeah, most of it had been in fans like right. Spockanalia. Like, yeah. That that didn't that didn't scan for me at all. Like I, I had no idea what that meant. As far as I knew, it was just stories that people had written about Star Trek that I was excited to read. Well, I have to say that for me, you know, now there is a, a there's a definite line between it, this is all considered tie-in fiction and it's really they consider it marketing at the studio level. But at the time, because we weren't, there was only three episodes of, or three seasons of the original Star Trek and then the animated series, to me, this was real Star Trek. Even though, like, I, in my mind, I was like, this isn't fan fiction. This is, this was sanctioned by Paramount. Right. And in Star Trek The New Voyages, all of the stories had introductions written by the actors. Uh, yeah. Leonard, Leonard Nimoy had written an introduction to, to Navarre and Intersection Point had a James Dewan uh, introduction. Michelle Nichols wrote an introduction. Majel Barrett Roddenberry wrote an introduction. George Takei. Or Gene Kelly. wrote it for Majel. And, or Gene wrote for Majel. And then <laughs> William Shatner wrote, there's somebody wrote it for Bill, uh, wrote the introduction to Mind Sifter. Which was written by Shirley Myaski, who was the president of the Bill Shatner fan club at the time. And it, it's, it's, that story is incredible. And for those who don't know, the, basically the Klingons have stranded, they've used the Guardian of Forever and stranded uh, uh, Kirk back in time without his memory. And he's, it's basically one flew of the cuckoo's nest in a way where he's in an asylum. And it was, you know, reading these stories as a kid, I first got this book. My mom packed this book in my luggage when I went to the YMCA summer camp, Camp Orkila on Orcas Island. And when I opened up my, uh, my, my, luggage to unpack when I got to camp, that book was sitting on top of my clothes and my mom had packed it. I'm like, Oh my God. Like I didn't want to do any camp activity. I wanted to just read this book. And it was, it was like, is that when you learned how to fight Rob? Because you had to, <laughs> well, we did learn how to, yes, we did learn how to, <laughs> we did learn how to shoot uh 22s and uh, we learned archery as well. Nice. I don't know if they do that anymore, but it's how it became the green arrow. Just don't tell anybody. Yeah. But it was, it was, you know, for a, a huge fan like myself, this was a year after the Star Trek blueprints and the Starfleet technical manual had been released. And to me, that was very legitimizing like the technical manual, even though it wasn't necessarily Canon and the enterprise blueprints weren't sure they were, they were Canon in my mind. That's exactly right. And, and, it was so in my mind as a young, you know, I was, I was, what was I in 76? I was nine. So these books were Star Trek. Like if you tried to explain to my nine year old self, well, they're not really, I'd be like, wait, what? What are you talking about? They absolutely were real Star Trek. And they were, there's the, a bowling alley on the Enterprise. God damn it. There was like Kevin <laughs> Riley talked about it. There was a Dan, you know, but there, 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 it was real. And there was no differentiation in my mind. It was just, this just happened to be Star Trek stories in another medium. So you couldn't tell us that it wasn't real. But I think what it did is it lit the wick of imagination. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, there was no other Star Trek there likely to be any more Star Trek. So the fact that, you know, at this point you were just rewatching the original episodes, the animated series, these were all new adventures and I do think that it was really exciting. Uh, you know, what's interesting about these, particularly this new voyage is, is if you look, it's all women who are yep. the authors of yep. all these stories. And I wonder why, what do you think the appeal was that is so 
uh, uh, leaned so heavily towards women at the time, because I would say that certainly the people that are making fan films and writing, you know, uh, on Wattpad and all that, it, the demo is probably more evenly spread out. And it's just, but it seems like Star Trek fandom, especially in its infancy, was much more um, a female uh, oriented than, than male. You know what I wonder if it's if it's less about whether more women were writing these stories than more women were sharing their mm. stories. Mm. Um, if you understand, in mm. the sense that I think you know, for when you're a geek and you're a boy, it's a little bit isolating. I mean, you find your tribe, you but to, there's you an keep it to yourself. Yeah, exactly. And I think that 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 women, especially then, I think like tend to be more open with each other about the things that they're interested in. I think that it, it's just, it's a different point of view on, on how to handle their fandom. And I, and I think you even see that now. It's just that I think that female fans are much more expressive uh, in terms of how they engage with the, with the material. Um, I feel like they're more likely to, to write stories. I feel like they're more likely to be artists, to do cosplay, to do all that. I mean, not that, that men don't do those things, um, but there is there is something of that communal experience that I think is more geared towards um, towards women sharing um, than it is towards men sharing. That's a very good point. I also think, though, that the male characters in Star Trek were the kind of people that women wanted to meet and and be with because. Coming out of the 60s, we still had the Western archetype was still looming large on TV, like with Bonanza and things like that. And, you know, the characters on Star Trek, these were men of action, but they weren't, you know, like in an episode like Balance of Terror, you would see McCoy come in and have a conversation with Kirk. Kirk would say, why me? And show that he has vulnerabilities. Sure. And, and McCoy would, would, would give him some advice. And these were men. That's why women loved the character of Spock. You know, they're like, if only I could be with him, I could open him up, you know, and show that he has this emotional side. And I think that the reason that Star Trek had a big contingent of female fans was the men were very appealing as well-rounded, capable individuals that weren't just sort of one-note archetypes that had been portrayed on screen for so long. Yeah, that's a great point. I absolutely wouldn't discount the fact that one of the main architects of Star Trek was a woman, was Dorothy Fontana. Yes. And I think that the, the knowledge of that uh, was uh, not only encouraging, but inspiring. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's a really good point. And I have to say, it's so interesting if you look at this era uh, where the, the fandom and the professionalism and the, the pros were not as bifurcated. It wasn't like, this is fan fiction right. and these are pros. Because if you look, it was the same year that the Inside Star Trek record album came out, 1936. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, all the actors and Gene talking about doing Star Trek in this book. Like you said, every how chapter. Much of, uh, how much of Bill Shatner is? <laughs> <laughs> every chapter is introduced by a Star Trek actor leading into the short story. There was much more of, you know, an interaction between cast and, um, you know, and the fans. And they all had fan clubs and they all had, you know, really, I think, good relationships with their fan clubs. You know, they were very, you know, actively uh, involved in, in those. I mean, the, the book begins with uh, a forward by Gene Roddenberry, where he says, those of us who were involved in making Star Trek are proud of our creation. There are things we might have done differently, and certainly there are things we might have done better. But we tried to always make it the very best we could under the circumstances of the television system, budget, time, fatigue, personal talent, and other restrictions 
facing us. And then he says, Star Trek was not a one-man job, although it was something that was very personal to me. My own statement of who and what the species of ours really is, where we are now, and something of where we may be going. I am have always been particularly grateful that Star Trek became an equally personal and meaningful thing to so many others. And, you know, this is the gene we love, right? Isn't it? That's this gene right there that we love. You know, a little, little humble and, and, and proud of his creation and, you know, a visionary who made this crazy thing happen that we're talking about 55 years later. And also, too, Star Trek hadn't become Star Trek. You know, it was <laughs> we were just a few. You're, you're looking at what was it? Seven years since the show had gone off the air. You had had the animated series. But beyond that, the viability of it as an ongoing concern was not even really. I mean, they couldn't get a movie off the ground. And I think these conventions baffled, especially the actors. I mean, they kind of understood it, but it was still, you're four years away from the first, you're four years after the first convention, which the actors were all taken aback by how many people showed up. And they'd show for free. Like they couldn't believe it just to see it. You know, now it's like, how much are my guaranteed autographs to make it worth my while? And, you know, what, you know, first class air and all this other stuff. And it's like, how long do I have to be there? And, you know, then it was like, Holy mackerel, people yeah. showed up to see me. Yeah. And, and also you had things like, this was very close to the time when they christened the first space shuttle Enterprise. And there was no, it was, there was an innocence to this fandom. Yeah. There wasn't, it was before it, Pathfinder, years before they, yeah. yeah. It wasn't commercialized, you know, and it wasn't, it was truly about the love of this show. And the show, it was not like you didn't have, they would never have done a Saturday Night Live sketch about Star Trek fandom then. I mean, it was really interesting. Even the well, Shatter- that is when they did it. Yeah, I was just going to say. No, no. What I mean is the, 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 the they, that, that wasn't about the fans. That was about the right, show the itself. Cancellation. Yeah, that's you true. know, and 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 how the show was. It was like we love this show. This show meant a lot, and look what you network executives did to it. You know, right. it was it was more a reflection of of the network killing something that was so wonderful. And it hadn't been commercialized and it hadn't been turned into something, something else. And the fans were not looked down upon. So you're basically, there's nostalgia now for the good old days when the network just killed wonderful things instead of zombifying. But but it's so interesting what you're saying. (laughs) Raising them from the dead like a folklore. Is is when a show you liked was canceled then, it was just like, you're like, oh, damn. And then you look at the TV guide to see what the new show was next season, right? right? Now there's this expectation, well, maybe they're going to save it. Maybe it'll go to streaming. Maybe they'll bring it back as a movie in five years. There's a different kind of attitude by fans now that not only is it an ownership of the whatever uh, show it might be, but it's an entitlement to it and a, Mm -hmm. a, and a, a position of commanding of the producers. Mm -hmm. What existed in the seventies was different. There was still ownership but it was taking responsibility for that ownership and carrying the torch further, helping the producers continue what they started. Yes. So it was a different attitude completely. Completely. Well, I just completely. remember, look, I knew nothing about this book and then I saw it at the bookstore. And I'm like, and it says on the T, it has to explain what it is. First time published, eight original Star Trek stories never seen on the screen. Right. Like it has to explain what the, the concept of the book is. <laughs> and I just thought, and how much did I spend? A dollar seventy-five, dollar seventy-five. And I just thought it was that was the coolest thing ever. I mean, they even have on the back cover, this is uh it says 
These are the new voyages of the Starship Enterprise. It's continuing mission to seek out new life, new civilization, strange new worlds, William Shatner. And then it describes in, in uh, it says, amazing, never before published stories of the golden age. Let's see, they had no idea, no idea how right they were. <laughs> A shining living legend of heroes, of great quests, of loves gained and lost, of steadfast courage and splendid deeds. A must book for all fans. There you go. You know, you know what else too is there was a reverence about Star Trek. Like, even it, you know, there was the later on there was uh, the best of Trek anthologies from the Star Trek fanzine Trek. But if you read these, these were very scholarly examinations of some of the most yeah. minute elements of characterization and elements in Star Trek, and how was love portrayed, how was religion portrayed, and there was a very studious approach. To Star Trek, it was not. It wasn't looked down upon. It was revered. It was. It was being put up on a on a pedestal by the people yeah. that were writing these stories, which has been almost completely taken away. Rob, you, you'll appreciate this story. When uh, I got the galleys, not the galleys, but uh, I got the uh, the mock up for my Battlestar Galactica book. So say we all. I, I hate. I hated the cover. I absolutely hate it. Ed Gross. Hated the cover. I call up my editor and, and I said the most. Horrible thing I thought I could muster. This looks like a best of Trek cover, you know? <laughs> and, and, and he had no idea what I was talking right. about. I well, said, this is so bad. It looks just like those old best of Treks because, of course, they didn't have the license right. to Star Trek. It was New American Library that put out yep. the best of Trek. So they did these weird generic spaceships on the cover. Like John Berkey paintings or something. Yeah, and, 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 you know, in retrospect now, it's like, oh, the best of Trek. It was so great. But man, at the time, those covers were all ridiculous, right? And But, it was, but you're right. It was a fantastic uh, series of books because they thought about Star Trek in a, with a complexity and a rigorousness that we, well, some of us, approach Star Trek these days. Yes. Well, the thing that's, I think, one of the big things that's different that we cannot discount, right, is um, part of the, the Roddenberry marketing machine and the machine that is Roddenberry for marketing um, that kind of kept the, the flame alive in some ways was his college tour and his continually sort of, you know, repeating you know, his, his lines about the sort of the philosophical underpinnings of the show, like I think, to, which are more or less true. Uh, you know, I, I, obviously we've, we've talked a lot about like, you know, how much of what Gene said was actually reflected in what the show actually was and how did it vary, um, you know, when the rubber met the road in terms of the stories. But what was presented to fandom, especially fandom of particular age, Right. And the fandom that was going to go out into the world and organize these things and do these things was that Star Trek was an intellectual exercise. Yes. And so I think it was carried a lot of it was carried forward from that. I don't want this to fall into that um, Sarlacc pit of being, oh, they're just nostalgic. Oh, the good old days. This is, you know, because that's not what I want this episode to be. No, I think that this is a very sort of cool. The beginning of something that you see, you know, in a lot of franchise IP now that all can be traced back to this, you know, space seed that was planted by Banta Books in 1976. So I want to ask you, Rob talked about his favorite uh, story was called uh, Mind Sifter, which the writer took Ruth Berman from a line in Errand of Mercy and oh. expanded it into a, 
really terrifying novella. Yes. Um, and uh, it, what else can you tell us about them? Then I want to ask the other guys what their favorite stories in this collection were. Well, you know, what it was is it, it combined certain things. First of all, it used canonical things like the Guardian of Forever, and it used the Klingons, and the Klingons were threatening. You know, they were scary, and they had done this thing to Kirk, mm-hmm. and it was, it, it had import. You know, it was, it, it, it was like, uh, when I read the story, there was real peril. I mean, Kirk was obviously my hero, and to have this done to him, it was really distressing. You know, and yeah. when I read the story, I was, it was, it, it was very, it was a very scary story. And it really, it was not your normal bill of fare because it seemed like this plot was really evil on the, on the part of the Klingons. And, and I just, I really enjoyed it. It was a sprawling story, but then it also showed Kirk's heroic side. And, and it was, it was just this wonderful, it was a wonderful story. And here's the thing that it's hard to explain to people now because all of this stuff was elevating what Star Trek was. No one at this time, none of the people that wrote these essays or wrote these books would look at something like the Mugatu from A Private Little War and make fun of it. For these people, a Mugatu is just a Mugatu. They didn't be like, well, they had to solve production problems, so they used a white ape suit with a horn on the head. You took it seriously. You're like, on this planet, this creature exists. So you you, you never, nowadays, you, you talk to people about Star Trek, you know, 50 years on, and there is an element that you can't penetrate where people look back and, and with a smile and it's, a, it's kind of a goof. They yeah. can no longer look at Star Trek objectively. They can only see it through the lens of they're in a position where Star Trek is beneath them in some there way. There is a layer of disdain that has grown from being made fun of. Yes, and, and it's very frustrating. And at the time, at the time when this book came out, I revered Star Trek. Yeah. And everybody that was writing these stories or was buying these books or going to conventions, we can embrace the goofiness, sure. but we still revered each story for what it was. And there wasn't a postmodern slant to our enjoyment of these stories. Right. And for those, of, for those of you who uh, are interested, Mind Sifter was turned into a screenplay and produced by James Cauley's uh, New Voyages fan films. And mm-hmm. they did that episode, and it's quite good. You can look it up. Oh, I didn't know that. That's really net. cool. Yes. Yep, it's great. Bridge to Mr. Spock. Mr. Spock, please respond. Mr. Spock, has it occurred to you that Jim Kirk may be deceased? Yes. Spock, are you out of your Vulcan mind? We can't leave here without finding out what happened to Jim. I have my orders. Orders? To hell with orders! That will be all, Dr. McCoy. My orders are not your concern. What happens in sickbay is... Spock! Dismissed. Um, okay, so Ashley, do you have a favorite uh, story in the collection? So obviously, other than the one that we're talking about, Mind Sifter is great. By the way, the, the what Mind Sifter, I, I wouldn't say that it reminds me of this. Uh, far beyond the stars, mm. I always think about that when I think about Mind Sifter. Yeah. Um, they have a lot in common. Obviously, they're very different stories with different intentions, but there's a but but they share a vibe and they share a thing in the premise that I think is that I think is very cool. 
Um, and it works both ways. It's just a terrific premise. Um, and it's actually for, and I, it's a weird thing to say for fan fiction. I think it's actually pretty well executed. Um, I will tell you what I personally appreciate. And the beauty of it is it's ridiculously short. It's so short, I could even read it to you. <laughs> uh, there is a sonnet that ends yep. the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it is though it is uh, Spock writing it uh, to Japrink. And what's, here's what's great about a sonnet, okay? What's difficult about the form is that it has, a, it has very specific structural requirements. Um, it's both like the number of syllables and it's the scheme. And then it's like how many lines. And there's, it, it is a very logical form <laughs> of, of poetry that expresses an emotion which I think is like, it's it's brilliant in a meta way, like on its face that somebody came up with it, but it's called Sonnet from the Vulcan. Omicron said he three. I thought the memory of you was gone. I thought it buried underneath the years, but now it rises bright as Vulcan dawn. And I remember you and earth and tears. Your tears were falling like the rains of earth. You were the storms and roses of Earth's spring. You could not know that, almost from my birth, the rites of Vulcan bound me to Dupring. I could not break those ties. I had no choice. Returned to space, left you and Earth behind. But still I heard the echo of your voice, found rain and wind and roses in my mind. You told me that you loved me, and you cried. I said I had no feelings, and I lied. How great yeah. is that? Come on, dude. That's better written, than the last. Written, written to Layla Kalomi. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Come yeah. on, man. It's like that. I like. I have to like give that like a stand up and cheer for the execution. If nothing, like, but it just it's really well done. It's really well written, and it's like and it's the know, last thing I expect to find in a collection. Because you know fiction. why? This fan fiction was written by adults, mm-hmm. grown ass adults. Yeah, who already had experience and could fold that into their creativity. Mm -hmm. And the creativity wasn't just uh, being driven by Star Trek. It was being driven by life experience and other things. So that's the difference. It's not just feeding on Star Trek. It's not just creating carbon copies of Star Trek. It's what we're bringing into Star Trek. Yes. To make Star Trek reflect us. Additive. Yes. It's additive. Yes. By the way, that was beautifully written. Absolutely. Yeah, it really is. It's not badly it, read. Darren, well, thank you, well Darren. done. <laughs> <laughs> is there a story that, that speaks to you, Darren, in the you know, uh, collection? Not especially, probably because I came to it so late. But uh, the, the one that we're going to talk about in depth and mm. maybe read some sections of is so much fun and so much a precursor to one of our favorite films of the last uh, 25 years, uh, Galaxy Quest. Um, and that is uh, Visit to a Weird Planet Revisited, right. which uh, is, is basically the premise of Galaxy Quest with a, a different twist and a different way of getting into it, obviously. Is this a, a spaceship? No, this is a starport for the ship. Would you guys like to see the ship?
but uh, it's really creative and it's really fun as a as a thought experiment to think of how it would have been produced in the day. It was also co-written by Gene Laura, who went on to write two uh, original series Star Trek novels and two Next Generation novels for Pocket. Right. And of course, this is the story of how the uh, the actors, Bill Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, and DeForest Kelly suddenly find themselves as they're filming an episode of Star Trek. We don't know which one. Uh, they're in the transporter room and suddenly find themselves on board the real Enterprise yeah. uh, in the 23rd century and have to pass themselves off. So it's Mirror Mirror meets Galaxy Quest. Yeah. And it's just a fabulous, fabulous bit of fun. Uh, and uh, the story gets an introduction from um, Major Barrett. What's interesting is this was a sequel to Visit to a Weird Planet, um, which uh, had been written, which is about Kirk, Spock, and McCoy finding themselves on the set of Star Trek. Right. right. Um, which I have not read. I have not read it either. Because it is not in this volume. Yeah, I so, think it was only published in a fanzine. Yeah. Uh, and a very early one. Although I think you can actually find it online. Somebody scanned Probably. it. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure. I'll tell you what I think is a the, the missed opportunity of this story and of Galaxy Quest. Uh, that I, I think, though, it's, it's what somebody said towards the beginning of this, this particular episode, that the, the fans tend to think, or there's a subset of fans who think that the shows are basically the actors. Well, there it sits, right? The <laughs> truth of the matter is, it's, it, it, the interesting version of this story isn't that Shatner and Nimoy and, you know, DeForest Kelly all go to uh, the Enterprise. The interesting version of this story is that Gene Kuhn and D.C. Fontana find themselves on the Enterprise. They're the people who could have figured out the problems, right? Like, <laughs> I've got your Captain Kirk and your Mr. Spock right, right here, you know? It's like, it's like where's, where's that story? Where's that Star Trek story where the writers uh, wind up on the bridge, <laughs> right? Yeah, they'd be well, throwing the brig right away. Yeah, exactly. To, you'd have to get through all the whining first. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cold. Where are the snacks? Yeah. All you have is chicken sandwich and coffee. This is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> how about how about if uh, how about if we uh, read a little excerpt uh, of this, like right after they uh, right after they find themselves beamed aboard the Enterprise? Okay. But the hope that this take would go right was promptly spoiled. For a moment, the actors wondered if they were fainting. There were spots before their eyes, and they felt dizzy, as if they'd been kneeling and then had stood up too quickly but their vision cleared and they were still standing on the transporter platform. Shatner, hoping to salvage the take, stepped forward and said authoritatively, Scotty, get a report on that power source and meet me in the briefing room. Power source, Captain, said the man behind the panel in a tone of utter bewilderment. There goes the take, muttered Nimoy disgustedly. What's the matter with you, Jimmy? The captain's all right to all appearances, but begging your pardon, Mr. Spock, are you? Nimoy suddenly noticed that they were in a room with four walls and a ceiling and with no camera or lights around, except for the normal room lighting apparently coming out of concealed ceiling panels. Nimoy dropped characterization and broke into a wide grin as he looked around. Beautiful, he said. Whose idea was this, Jessman's? This mock-up must have cost a mint. How'd you get us here? I, I think there's something wrong, said Kelly. Aye, Doctor, there is that, seemingly. How about dropping the accent, said Nimoy. Mr. Spock, 
Lieutenant Commander Montgomery Scott blazed with righteous indignation. Kelly spoke quickly. Captain, will you give me a hand getting him to sick bay? Shatner nodded, and they each took one of Nimoy's arms, prepared to hustle him out into the corridor. By this time, however, he too had counted up the costs of scene design and construction. James Dewan could have gone on improvising in the tones of outraged Scottishness all day without breaking, but Matt Jeffries just didn't have the budget to have built the room they were in. The door swooshed open at their approach, and all three knew, even before they got past it, that they were on board the Enterprise. The pneumatic door sound was supposed to be added by Glen Glen Sound. They had never before heard it in real life. The door swooshed shut behind them, and they stood still for a moment, feeling totally lost. My going, Dee, said Shatner, trying to recover some poise. Now, how the hell do we find sickbay? Go to the elevator and say sickbay, suggested Kelly. Yeah, said Nimoy. That's right, they work on voice commands, don't they? Sorry, I blew it. Well, said Shatner. If it weren't impossible, it's exactly the sort of thing Justman would pull. Sort of thing you'd pull as far as that goes. If you thought you could break me up, Nimoy grumbled. And it goes uh, further, but uh, what a great little introduction to them finding themselves where no man has gone before. It's a great setup, and it takes you to a really interesting situation, in much the way, I guess, that Captain Kirk has to deal with the Hawkins in the Mirror Universe. Right. In this story, William Shatner has to deal with Core, um, <laughs> which is uh, confronting the Enterprise, which is just so delicious. And he has to deal with Nimoy. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and, and what's great, I, a little throwaway is, uh, you know, how Nimoy, Nimoy is very excited to look through the, the little blue scanner and see what's really in there. <laughs> <laughs> what's, what's Fox in? <laughs> it's so it's so well done and the the little asides uh mentioning you know the actual uh people who did these jobs uh is really fun and uh sort of uh almost like inside baseball well what's interesting about the inside baseball of it and think about this for a second in the in the internet age it's fairly easy to know things right it's it's fairly easy to know like who designed the, the enterprise and who did this and who did that and who's the post house and who's, if you want to know this shit, like you can know it. But when these stories were published, it wasn't necessarily easy to know this stuff. Oh, mm-hmm. I, 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 but you have, no, no, I mean, look, and there's cases of the Bible. Yes, everyone exactly. The now, making of Star Trek. Yeah. But you had to, it, it's a very particular thing about Star Trek fandom. Right. That is the kind of thing that you would be able to acquire, that you would go out and acquire. There was a certain like being in the club oh, to the whole totally. thing that's very different, like from uh, from from almost anything else that like that set the tone for um, for what fandom is now. Except again, now, like it's it's easy. It's ubiquitous. Yeah. And yeah. There, there was no making of Gunsmoke book. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Nobody would have like had an aside about like, you know, like, and it, you know, it was more expensive than a saloon that whoever the hell built the saloon would have yeah. built. Yeah. Right. A funny thing too about this story is it's the ultimate wish fulfillment for everybody who was reading it. You know, we're all like, except for Tim Coon. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, I wish that happened to me. Why can't I be on the Enterprise? It's particularly apt for Darren Doctorman, who uh, will be leaving us later this week to wing his way to Ticonderoga, New York. Where he wants to be again, be escorting. Once again, I find myself on board the Enterprise, <laughs> escorting uh, Bill Shatner around the uh, the Enterprise. And I mean, uh, they, they what they what they should do is have you know like 
midnight tours where, you know, you find yourself themed, you know, on the enterprise uh, in, in the 23rd century and have all the everything rigged up and then have, they can have people playing the character. You could do a whole thing. It'd be like laser tag, except with the. Uh, Except with uh, you, you suddenly find yourself on board the Enterprise, and and you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't think it's such a bad idea. You know, that, talk about the ultimate uh, Star Trek experience to find yourself on those sets. Pretty pretty extraordinary. You know, we talked about two really great stories. The the book is not without its 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 missteps. Obviously, there's some Mary Sue stories. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at you, Enchanted Pool. Spock right. gazes into the magic waters and sees an exquisite wood nymph, his true love. You know, so I, I mean, there is a fair well, share of, of, of that uh, going on here as well. But, uh, you know, the fun, the, the industry, you know, the fun of, of these other stories really are what makes it. Uh, when, there's nothing fun about Mind Sifter, but, um, but, well, but Spock is my really, lover and I must kill him. <laughs> I want to hug him and love him and squeeze him. And I love I love Shatner's introduction to Mind Sifter too, because of course, um, you know, he says uh he talks a lot about if he ever got to play Kirk again, how he would do it and how the character would evolve, which is great in retrospect. Uh, but he also says this story asks the question: what remains of a man when nothing is left to him? Nothing but his most basic self. If the answer it gives is for Kirk is true. And this is some of what people saw in Kirk and in his world, that perhaps that is part of the answer to why people in our world still care. And perhaps that caring is not so strange after all. I would like to think so. So there you go. You know, it's it's pretty amazing that you have these glimpses of Shatner back in the day. Also, if you read the making of the Star Trek, Star Trek the Motion Picture, the Return to Tomorrow book that right. Creature Features mm-hmm. published, it was a double issue from Cine Fantastique. The interviews with Shatner are incredible. Yeah, what I love about that book, and we've covered it here on the show with Preston, is obviously this is not a book that's told in retrospect. Right. You know, it was written contemporaneous with the making of Star Trek, the motion picture, and that's what's so interesting because right. before everybody started to change their stories or their um, their memories started to evolve. It was, it was written before things started going horribly wrong. Right. Mm. Which, is, which is hilarious. Yeah. Yep. Gene also wrote a forward for this book. And uh, it's, it's, it's lovely that he, uh, he does. I mean, viewers like this have proved there is a warm, loving, and intelligent life form out there. And that it may even be the dominant species on the planet. That is the highest compliment and the greatest repayment that they could give us. Gene Roddenberry. Yeah, that's cool. No, no that's it's lovely. It's incredible. And I, and I hope even though it isn't licensed... That I'll see some money from. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, you know, many, many years later, I know that um, Pocket Books did something similar. They printed a collection of short stories. Our good friend Jeff Bond, I believe, had a story in one of those. Absolutely. And uh, he was very excited about it. Yeah, they you know? published 10 volumes of those. Oh, really? Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. I have them all right over there. Of course you do. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, you know, this was an era, Star Trek Lives, The New Voyages, uh, the Blueprints Technical Manual. And it was also the way that, you know, obviously what was so great about the Blueprints at the time were the fact that it was packaged in this, you know, snap case. And then you could take the Blueprints out and open them up. And, you know, it wasn't just like in a standard book, 
You know, it was the way it was disseminated. Along those lines, the technical manual was interesting because at least in the version that I got, uh, you could take out the cardboard cover of it mm-hmm. and write mm-hmm. the book. And at that moment, it becomes an in-universe book. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. And the because- blueprints to the Enterprise were as well once you took them out of the pouch. Right. Because yeah. they were they were done as if they were real blueprints. Yes. Yes. Which is so great because I think that's what I think that ultimately circles back to why people are obsessed with canon, why people love and embrace canon, because they want to believe this universe is real. And yeah, when you break somewhere. canon, you shatter the illusion. Right. And that was, they understood that in the 70s, yeah. didn't they? I mean, you're right. When you take the card out of the slipcase on the technical manual, which is Bantam Books, you know, 695, whatever, it just is Starfleet technical manual. Yeah. You can dispense with that, and then it feels real. like you're holding a, a, a prop from the 23rd century. It's the yeah. same thing with the blueprints. An artifact well, from the future. But the funny thing was, is is that the people that made it thought that way. Yeah. You know, they, like they were thinking, you had people that were, were designing this, and they thought to themselves, what if this felt like it was real? Because it was real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, and, and in a way, even though I've always said Star Trek is a period piece for a future that never happened, it, it, for us, it was, and no one looked down on you for look. I mean, we all knew it was a TV show, yeah. Of but yet, in our minds, we allowed this universe to percolate as if it were real, and we treated it as such. Right. So you're saying this little thing they did in a lark. Yeah, you put it into a colossal waste of time. But, but here's the, the thing: even though we all work in, in TV and movies and at a professional capacity, we still want to recapture that magic of believing it's real. Yeah. Right. Yes. Even though we've all built built on sets, filmed on sets, written, produced, directed, edited, you know, it, 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 and 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 been a part of creating that illusion for hundreds of thousands, millions of fans, it's still we want to recapture that experience of 1976 of want you know it's it's Fox Mulder. I want to yeah, believe exactly. I was just gonna say that you bastard. But but you know, and I'll tell you something. They carry that ethos into the making of Star Trek, the motion picture. Yeah. And when you when you look at David Kimball's cutaway of the Enterprise, it's all functional. Like they they took time. I mean, between what Mike Miner was doing and Andy Probert was doing and all the designers. And they were trying to extrapolate how can we make this feel of a, of a piece yeah. with the original series? How can we make it fit? How do we make it fit? And that every single decision in terms of its design work... And all of that was considered. And even when you saw the motion picture, I mean, I was 12 when it came out. My entire life up to that point as a lifelong Star Trek fan was believing this. And it wasn't until when, you know, Star Trek II was when it really started to change. Yeah. And this idea that, that, that it, the, the disbelief or the, what does it matter? Let's, let's make it more just, it's a movie. I just make it fun. It's okay. Yeah, make it, it fun. started to change. And I would say that the uh, from 1966 to 1979 was a part of, was part of Star Trek history where the audience believed, and the people that made Star Trek believed. Right. right. Yeah. And that changed. Yeah, that's great. Well said. So true. So true. And you know, even in the Star Trek the motion picture novelization, we've talked about this. You know, Gene writes the introduction as though this really happened right. and, you know, try, you know, talks about, uh, you know, the 79 mission logs, which right. exaggerated. And that, and that the crew was slightly upset with them 
that he, the way he chronicled with it. the way he chronicled them, making them seem larger than life. And it's so much fun mm-hmm. because it goes back. I feel like, you know, uh, in Shirley, where he says, you know, go, talks about the, the, the elemental uh, uh, need to, for, for people to play. Right. More complex and, the mind. The more complex, the, 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 the more complex the mind, the, the greater the need for play. And I think it's true because obviously we're thinking about things other than just Star Trek. But Star Trek brings us back to the past and it brings us back to what it was like to be on the playground, you know, pretending the merry-go-round was the guardian of forever or something, you know, all these years ago. Kept Not some guy in a hat. Who, who bullied us so, Finnegan for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I think Star Trek fulfills that whole idea of, um, you know, the greater the mind, the greater the need for the simplicity of play. And what's interesting is that that has all changed. You know, I, I think nowadays people... Not for us. No. no, no. And, and I We're think still that simple. what's interesting <laughs> too is people claim that, oh, it's just nostalgia. You just feel nostalgia for the way that you felt back then. And I'm like, no, what I, what I miss is I miss that people were trying to create something that felt real, Yeah, that it wasn't, right. it wasn't just entertainment. This was, this was this world that you could inhabit. If you wanted to write essays about the ethos or the ethics of behavior you could and it would be published in a book like the best of trek or you could write a sonnet and use that form about how star uh, spock felt about lila colomi on, yeah, right. on momicron 73 and it felt real like that sonnet does feel like spock wrote it yeah. it wasn't written like an author was writing about spock it, it is in spock's voice and that's why it's great yeah almost explicitly um it, you know the thing that's i, I think that maybe we should, we should clarify about making it feel real is at least this is how I interpret it. It's, it's not about how, um, how it's, it's, you know, we want to pretend that Star Trek is a real thing in a real <laughs> right. world. You know what I mean? It's, it's, there's a verisimilitude that's, that's created certainly, but it's the self consistency right? It is constantly thinking about there are principles that make the world work as a as a dramatic idea as a as a narrative there are rules that that the people follow uh there are rules that objects follow now sometimes those things change they adjust little details but the fundamentals always stay the same obviously like you know we can list a whole bunch of things like you know the name of the federation changed it was just you know things things shifted all over the place uh, in the original series especially through the first several episodes but when you t- start talking about like the character's ethos, right? And, and who they were, how they behaved, what things meant, that was very self-consistent. And that's a completely different exercise. It's, um, as you said, you, you know, you're talking about uh, the Star Trek up until, until 1979 and then, you know, what happens in the era afterward. There's a, there's a temptation that we have as, as creators that what we create must first be entertaining. And yes, it must in all times, in all places, be entertaining, but the more difficult exercise is how do we make it entertaining, but not lose the essence of the thing that we're making? And what is so particular and special about Star Trek, particularly in those early years, is that Star Trek uh, very much used to um, to this very singular vision of what it was. Like you could believe, I could believe. As a fan, as a little boy, you know, five years old, the same as like my older brother, 11 years old, um, could believe that that was a world 
that was real and we could make uniforms and we could have tricorders and phasers and communicators. And there were warp engines and that, you know, in the technical manual, there were different kinds of starships that felt like they lived in the same design universe as the USS Enterprise, you know? It's very much a historical drama. Yes. And as long as it's treated that way, as long as it's treated as if you uh, as if you were writing a story that takes place during the American Revolution, you know, you can you can tell whatever story you want, but you need to keep within those guidelines of it having taking place in, you know, the the late 1700s or else it isn't what you're setting out to do. So it's it's very tricky. I mean, you know, very tricky for someone who doesn't do this a lot um, to think of it that way. And I think that's one of the things that I enjoyed so much, you know, reading these stories and and uh, and experiencing, you know, the creativity of fandom in this time period. Uh, oh, yeah. And, you know, Ashley, when people talk about the inconsistency, like I, I talk a lot about canon, Star Trek canon, and people say, well, you know, they they didn't mention the Federation until later on in the series. It yeah. wasn't talked about first. But to me, there's all kinds of different organizations. Mm-hmm. And if you have people thinking about, well, that's the United Earth Space Probe Agency. Well, yeah, because somebody probably worked there. You know, and then that agency changed. Or there's just different kinds of... And Starfleet is more of a, a general term. Starfleet Command, United Federation of Planets, Fleet Command, whatever. There's all things that people... It depends on where you worked, where you were stationed, where you grew up. There's all different kinds of nomenclature. And even as a kid, when there were inconsistencies, in my mind, I would always try and, and so did the best of Trek essays, they would sort of fill in these blanks. Yeah. Because the, right. the real the real world has all kinds of different places. Like, what government agency are you going to talk about? And, you know, it might have been like a, a decree came down that, look, if you're going to go meet, a, if you're going to have a first contact situation, you have to start saying the United Federation of Planets. Right. That is the new policy of what we're going to say. It's and like a it, memo. Just well, like, but, but I mean, but that's not wrong. I mean, look, I think because you had five year missions, you had different missions. So people were out on the frontier for five years and they came right. back and they're like, stuff changed. What do you mean we're the Federation now? Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, but that's, uh, and I, I mean, this, I, it's not mind. wrong, but look, I think that the retroactive continuity thing is great. I mean, it's, it, to me, it's a lot of work to get to a place where I think that we as fans can agree that at some point, things settle into what we accept as the norms, right? Yes. And that when we look at where those things vary, especially in those early episodes, it's just, they're just the early episodes that we don't, we don't really have to account for that except what we're accounting for in our own heads. Because what it settled into was, it's the United Federation of Planets. Yes. It's Starfleet, it's Starfleet Command. But part of, the, part of the fun is seeing how those early writers were able to first of all recognize these discrepancies and mm-hmm. can find creative ways around them. That's right. Well, and then they decide, well, this into. sounds way cooler than the United yeah. Earth. See, Space they were Earth. inventing all this from whole cloth. They had the hardest job of any of the shows because they were inventing it from scratch. Right. And right. the fact that they sort of settled into a groove and figured it out so quickly, I mean, kind of by errand of mercy, you, you kind of have everything figured out. Yeah. Um, that's pretty freaking amazing. Yeah, it's really hard. You know, look at Tolkien. You know, I mean, how many years it took him to do Lord of the Rings? I mean, Gene created a sci-fi universe, and yeah, he took a little dash of Forbidden Planet and stuff, but it, it's a wholly original vision for the most part. 
And he did it, you know, in a matter of weeks. What we did here, we did in a <laughs> day. <laughs> I mean, but, it's, and, it's, it's and really it's, extraordinary. But it's also it extraordinary because Gene didn't do it alone. Uh, right. And he had a bunch of people working on this. And it's amazing that through that brain trust, uh, something coherent came out. And they all took it so seriously. Yeah. You know, so you had, you know, whether it be Gene or Matt Jeffries or Bob Justman, it wasn't just some dopey little sci-fi show that they were getting a check right. for. They took it really seriously. And even the people that didn't last long, like JD, you know, like um, John D.F. Black, you know, even though him and Ron Bray didn't get along, you know, they were it was, they were fighting over what they both believed in. You know, it wasn't right. like he was treating it as something trivial. Right. Well, and, and another thing about the, the Star Trek universe, and I think Star Trek, the motion picture, in a way, pointed this direction. It was evolving and moving into the future. So another thing that was added into your fandom, if you watched the movies, then by the time you got to Next Generation, sure, were the inconsistencies in the universe irksome to me? Yes. But Next Generation took place 80 plus years after the original series. And who remembers exact history 80 years on? So in my mind, I'm like, okay, you know, things have changed. And Star Trek grew and changed from 1966 to 2005. You know, they were adding for this fictional universe. And I find it sort of strange that it's been, it's bizarrely, and I don't quite understand. I mean, I understand from a corporate branding standpoint that from 2009 on, Star Trek has gone back to 1966. And it's yeah. been stuck there. It's because it, it was cooler clothes. And cooler yeah. music. But it, it, I mean, it's, it's interesting to me that, that Star Trek pointed this direction where you have this literally a universe that was growing and changing and evolving and you can keep pushing. In the, and what, it didn't start out this way, but one of the interesting things about Star Trek as a franchise is that the growing of it and expanding out into different eras was built into the, into the franchise. Yeah. And then it was sort of, that was sort of, that was arrested for a while. I mean, they've tried to do that with Discovery, but they were trying to escape. Your behavior is arrested. They were trying to escape the trap the that was set for them. Yeah, and it, it goes in. And um, unfortunately, you know, there's not a lot of the, the extrapolation into the a thousand years in the future wasn't as say effective as one might have wanted it to be. And it, it's just, it's interesting that we want to go back to this, I don't know, the purity of the original series, but the purity of the original series was as much about the place and the time it was created as anything and, else. And it was there first. But regardless of how like the, the show itself has evolved, or the shows themselves have evolved or devolved, uh, it's almost irrelevant, right? Because the thing to me that's that's key is is what you were saying about what the creators brought to the show, right? What they put into it, like the the passion that they had for it, the fact that like they didn't trivialize it. And what's interesting to me, and and what I think is is reflected in Star Trek: The The New Voyages in a very particular way that's that's different, perhaps, um, from other literary adventures of the Starship Enterprise is that it shows how the fans fed back into that system mm. in the same way. Yeah. That they were creating stories that were extrapolations of the world that had been created for them, that they were invited to live in. They designed, they built, they executed adventures that fit comfortably uh, inside those, those confines that had been established. And yet in stories like Mind Sifter, managed to expand 
our understanding of what Star Trek could be. And that, to me, is a sign of a really healthy relationship between um, a, a fictional universe and its fandom. It's not... It is, it's a, it's a give and take. And it's, and it's a very particular thing. And it may be mm. that that time will never come again because it did exist in a time when you couldn't know if there would actually, be more. Here's a question for you. Sure. How beholden do you need to be to that fan base? Because look, at, look I'm going to use Star Wars as an example, just because I don't want to do Star Trek. Sure. Um, so, okay, we all want Boba Fett. We love Boba Fett. <laughs> do Boba Fett. And they do Boba Fett. We hate Boba Fett. You ruined this character. Okay, you know what we love? We love that Anakin and 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 uh, Ewan. They were really good. We want to see them again. Let we want to see Obi Wan again. Okay, we're gonna give you Obi Wan. We hate it. It's awful. Why'd you do that to these characters we love? So like you know, and yet um, it, there's such a wariness to do anything new and original because and yet, that's insane. And I'll tell you why. Because the the most successful uh, pieces of the uh, of the Star Wars universe, for example, particularly recently, right, um, the Mandalorian is a whole new character opening up a whole new understanding of that culture. Grogu, a, a character that we never could have imagined. They're the most popular elements. But of... The Mandalorian isn't an original character. He's just Boba Fett with a different name. Oh, yeah. Sure. Except like clearly like except this Boba Fett, like, you know, doesn't take a lot of naps and wait for his wife to do all the work. Right. He's out there. He's a single dad. He's raising a kid who's very force sensitive. You know, he likes to steal other kids food with like the force. I mean, this gets tough. The good news <laughs> is he can always find a babysitter and his but his adventures are awesome and we dig it. And you know why? Because we don't come into it with very with particular expectations of um, of what his adventures will be and should be. We haven't spent 40 freaking years building up in our heads um, who the Mandalorian is and what Grogu should do and what that relationship should be like, you know, with Luke Skywalker or Ahsoka or anybody else, as opposed to Boba Fett, where for 40 years, we've been wondering about that guy who didn't say anything except he threw Han Solo in the trunk of his car and he flew away. Right. Like <laughs> that's that's what we've been wondering about. And he turns out to be this guy. OK, except that's a little disappointing. You can't be disappointed in The Mandalorian. But if they had made The Mandalorian Boba Fett, it would have been awesome. It would have been just fine. It's not probably it's so. Not, it's not that our expectations are screwed up. It's that their delivery is screwed up. That's it, what the problem is. I, I think I think we're actually in violent agreement it's that, <laughs> it's, it's, it's that you know look the there's a, a thing that sort of happens when you're you're getting into like oh the fans want to see boba fett boy they'll really be excited about boba fett well then something well, creeps that, into your head where you're like i think i've got to do something that, but that comes from the executive assuming that the fans just want to see something called boba fett yeah exactly that's as a opposed to like John Favreau saying, you know what, I'm cool. Boba Fett, but I can't call him that. He's okay. going to be the Mandalorian. And he's going to be Just this once, Kay. Just this once, Kay. I'll let you ask about new Star Trek. Just this once on this show. So my question to you is, you know, they keep going back to these beloved iconography of Star Trek. The, you know, um, the, the TOS era, Picard and stuff. Why is there such a reluctance to create 
new characters and new situations. Because you can say the discovery went forward to the 31st century or whatever, but it started with saying that this character is Fox's sister and all this other stuff. So my, 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 my question is, when I think Gene Roddenberry made a fundamentally sound decision when he did Next Generation. He said, I'm going to set Next Generation 70 years after the original Star Trek. Yeah. Do not bring up any original Star Trek characters. Uh, I'm not, we're not going to have any original Star Trek. This is a totally new enterprise. You don't know our 12 as well. But anyway, so. Um, you, but if you treat her like a lady, she'll always bring right, you right, home. Right, right. But then <laughs> at the end, he decides, okay, I'm going to slip D in here to yeah. send her off, to give One it of the, the most beloved moments of the next generation. Which, yes. is, which is a lovely, a lovely moment. But it didn't hinge on that. That right. was sort of like. And they never said it. The they baton. never said his name. Well, you, okay, you had to, fine, you, but no, but you, but no, but you had to know. Like they didn't lean into it. They, they, he assumed that the audience would it's get time it. Time on Star The, the point Trek that I'm making. This is not uh, in any way uh, to 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 cast dispersions or criticize. Of course. Any what I'm 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 asking is why is there this reluctance? Is it a marketing thing? You can't hang the publicity campaign for a new show on new characters. I think they're. I think they are justifiably worried that original characters that they put out will not be embraced, right. much like what happened on Discovery. Um, right. Um, and and I think that they're the corporate thinking is that if you wrap it around something that is known and loved, then you can't go wrong. The problem is they are doing Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, but they're changing the original text, so it makes no sense. <laughs> it's fascinating way of looking that, at it. That's and I don't think that it's it. wrong. It's and I think that the thing that's different about Discovery, right? Here's like the it's how is the exception um that proves the rule is Discovery in its in its when it was aborting was created brought by Brian Fuller, who you know had spent a lot of time uh in the Star Trek universe. And I think even though he went back in time. Uh, in terms of just just where that show was set or when that show was set, I think he was setting out to do something that was different in its own way. He knew all the rules and he was breaking them um, in the way that you can break rules when you understand how and why they work. Right. And I think when he went You have away, to know how things work aboard a starship. That's right. I, I, I think that ultimately is kind of how discovery became what it is, but you know, Picard, strange new worlds, like even lower decks to a certain extent, like, you know, they are all dependent on um, other parts of the universe that a prodigy, right. They're dependent on things that had been created before in order to have their dramatic power. And look, there are things about them that like, I, I dig obviously like, you know, again, like, you know, we, we all love Anson Mount as, as uh, as Chris Pike, he's like he's he's yeah. perfect casting. If you wanted to find like Jeffrey Hunter in 2022, it's like well there he is. Wait, um, but you know it's I think that Darren's right. It's there's a a certain mentality in the development process that says we are creating these shows to generate subscriptions and put butts in seats. Those subscriptions will come if people see something that feels familiar and comfortable and they will stick around for it. I like Boba they Fett. They like Boba I like Fett. But, but, but here's what I don't understand is 
wouldn't audiences rather have a Star Trek show that's created for them in a contemporary fashion? I mean, the thing about Next Generation was, you know, you, know, you had a counselor on the bridge because it was, it was the 80s and, and therapy was something that became normalized. So you have a character that they never would have created in the 60s because there was a stigma if you're seeing a head shrinker or whatever. Although, you know, it's funny because their version of a head shrinker was Dr. Boyce uh, with a uh, glass right, of uh, martini. <laughs> but I, 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 find it, I find it strange that they want to recreate these Star Trek shows with characters that are 56 years old or even older if you talk about Captain Pike. Whereas I would have thought, wouldn't it have been interesting to create all new characters out of whole cloth that represent the contemporary audience today? Because what they've done is they've gone back and recreated the past, but tried to plug in modern sensibilities with certain character traits and things like that. that that's what they did with Discovery. At, well, Discovery and Strange New Worlds and Picard. Yeah. And it, it seems so strange because what they've done is, is they've, they've, they've unbalanced their own shows when if they just created brand new characters, Star Trek should always be, it was always a reflection of the time in which it came out. And yet now these new shows are created with the DNA of something from a different era, whether it was the 60s or the 80s. And they're trying to force it into the round hole of us. The square peg of the past is supposed right. to fit into the round hole of the present. What was so interesting is even when they did the prequel and they did Enterprise, they quickly came to the conclusion that making T'Pol T'Pau was a huge mistake. Yep. And they right. changed it to an original character rather than try to make also uh, character payments. That's the right decision. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. The, that was the right the decision. Also money. Right. Yeah. They well, yeah, will be rewarded. But also, but the the fact that um they you didn't know, have to do character payments Michael, because Michael of Burr, the era Michael in which you Oh, you're right. Those didn't that, that didn't exist in the contract. Didn't exist yet. But the point is, I have no objection to Michael Burnham as a character. I have an objection that they have to shoehorn her into Spock's family. Right. That's my objection. Yeah. That it has nothing to do with the actress or the stories or anything. It it has to do with the fact that they're trying to put one over on us. Right. That's why I object. Well, you know, it's a case of wanting to take the goodwill yeah. to beloved and, and shoehorn and, and, it in, and, and and use that goodwill to benefit another character. But in a way, but you can't then make your the 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 lead of your show Spock's long lost sister without in some way diminishing Spock himself as a character. That's correct. That's because correct. I think because that has the, yes, and I think that they've done that, and it 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 is sort of unfortunate, and they've done that I think across the board, yeah. and and now they're doing it, they're diminishing other characters in other Star Trek episodes, you know, like they'll they'll replay a Star Trek episode as we saw in the finale of Strange New Worlds. And one of the great relationships, one of the great alien relationships ever in Star Trek is the relationship the Romulan commander had with his centurion in Balance of Terror. And they have this great exchange about the fact that, well, you know, the centurion's like, if there is weakness, if our enemy shows weakness, is it not our duty to, to find that weakness and exploit it? And Mark Leonard's alien uh, Romulan captain says, but must it always be so? Yeah. You know, my, my gift to the homeland, another, another war. war. And one of the great things about that entire episode is that relationship. Getting mm-hmm. into the mindset of because your... Because it humanizes them. But it also, it, not only does it humanize them, it shows that they're not just evil. Yes. They're Correct. adversaries that have a very legitimate viewpoint. Correct. And that we're watching this going, 
Isn't that interesting? And then when you see it co-opted in the modern age, when they literally replay that episode for the finale of Strange New Worlds, that particular relationship is absent from the episode. Well, they recreate everything else. And, before, and you've, before we, before we spiral, spiral into negative... No, we're not going to, because Al Neary is closing the door. Yes. Yeah, but what I, what I mean is, is that when they... The point I was trying to make is that the, when you're trying to bring something forward from the past... Because you can't bring all of it forward because it's not created in the time that was originally created in, you're always going to suffer uh, the results of diminishing returns. You're always going to lose something because things that were created of a specific time carry those times with them. You can't get, you can't recreate something and only halfway do it. You have to bring your own, it has to reflect, Star Trek must reflect the age in which it was made. It has to reflect our time today because it always has. And the age in which these new voyages stories were made was a time without Star Trek. Before yeah. time. And Absolutely. In the before time. And it, 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 it is hard to imagine. Exactly. A world what that was like. Star Trek, yeah. I mean, we are kind of like the last generation to know what it was like to have nothing but the original series yeah. and we like it that way. and 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 uh were we were we going to no it didn't seem like we were no. you know it was not uh it it, it it you know the show i mean the movie was aborted so many times yeah. that uh you would never thought that star trek would come back and now we live in a world not not only which star trek has been re re resurrected more times than spock but uh star wars battlestar galactica i mean everything short of super train has gotten a reboot. Give it time. You know, and, and, and yet, you know, I'm sure Rob would agree. One of the most interesting things I think that's being done right now isn't a spinoff or a reboot or anything. It's the For All Mankind. For All Mankind. Which is, Absolutely. you know, wildly original. I still haven't watched. And what's and really watched. interesting is Ron Moore has even said, think of this as the origins of the Star Trek universe, which yeah. I really love because the idea that the Star Trek past was our past, it shares similarities, but I never, even as a kid, I never thought that the Star Trek universe had the same, the exact same history right. our world had. Because no. Star Trek wasn't, you know, they, the Enterprise did they not- They had the eugenics wars, we didn't. Yes, oh, as far as I know. The 90s were a lot worse than our 90s. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but listen, look, this is a very interesting discussion. Uh, we touched on something that we, uh, we try to avoid here on the show, but I'm glad we did. Because we did it, I think, in a very uh, mature and uh, um, reasonable, logical that uh, you know uh, fashion. That whether people like or dislike uh, these shows, I think they can respect the uh, the opinions being offered in a very oh, respectful way. Mm. Uh, but more importantly, this is a love letter to uh, an era long gone of the, the 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 professional fan Star Trek: The New Voyages, a wonderful book from 1976. Uh, that was uh, the seed of so much fandom, uh, along with uh, many of the other books and, and stuff that was blossoming at the time. And you talk about gatekeeping. This is before there was even a gate. There was no gate. There was, there was no, no fence. <laughs> Everybody could walk across the lawn. There was no gate. There was no key master. <laughs> there was only Zool. It was, it was only Captain Kirk's safe number. It was so, just the open prairie. <laughs> where people could... Tread across it, sifting minds, beaming up to the Enterprise. 
You beaming here. You beaming there. Frolicking with I'm beaming here. Spock in the water. Uh, but uh, but anyway, this is look. This is fun because I love when we can mine these little lost nuggets of Star Trek ephemera. Yeah. You know, and this to me was like, you know, I don't, I mean, it's, it's been out of print since 19, the early 90, 90s, this book, but it went through an astounding amount of printings here. Wait, right? I, I, I wrote it down. It was, uh, wrote yeah, it from down. 1976 to 1996. Wow. It was in print. It was, I mean, I have the first one, but it went through oh, yeah. a staggering number of printings. Yeah. Um, it's remarkable. And, um, you know, and, and and the whole say what you will. I mean, I know Rob's a huge fan of the Star Trek fiction line. That had a huge part of keeping Star Trek alive. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, I remember reading a lot of those Bantam books and not being particularly impressed with many of them, but still it was exciting to to read them. And then the Timescape books were also very hit or miss in the beginning. Mm. But you had a lot of people, like even the, one of the last Bantam books published was The Galactic Whirlpool in 1980. By David and Gerald. David Gerald wrote it. So there was a, that, that, gave, that gave that book a lot of legitimacy. And that was one of the, I think that was the well, last DC novel. D.C. Fontana was writing novels too. Yep. She wrote one gave in 1989. You know, so, there um, is one more person I would, I would like to give a shout out to. Who would that be, Ashley? So, you know, I, I ordered... My uh, my copy of Star Trek: The New Voyages from from Amazon because my original copy is sitting somewhere in a pile of freaking books that I am just too lazy to go through. So uh. I ordered it now when it arrived because obviously, look, these are older original editions. Yes, this came from somebody's library, and I would like uh, to just see if this person is look. They're probably not out there because it was stamped June 6, nineteen eighty. Okay. Somewhere they're crying in the Somewhere dark. Somewhere crying in the dark. Phyllis Founda Verway. Phyllis, if you're out there listening, then uh, have your book. this is for you. I have your book, you beautiful bastard. That would be even crazier than Rafe Needleman listening. It would be crazier than Rafe Needleman. That would be wild. Rafe, so. <laughs> and by the way, I want to tell you out there that we have something very special coming up a week from Sunday. Of course, I'm talking about the 20th anniversary of Starship Smackdown. This is a little panel we started as a lark 20 years ago that has become this mammoth thing at Comic-Con, covered on NPR, the San Diego Register. We broke out of two rooms. We're now in a giant, giant room. We've been doing this for 20 years. I don't know how many more years we're going to do it for. <laughs> um, but we are, are, are going to bring you something very special. We are going to find out what is stronger, good or evil. We will pit good starships versus evil starships to find out, to finally answer the eternal question that Yarnak posed, which is stronger. So we hope you'll join us if you're in San Diego for Comic-Con. And if you're not, We'll hopefully bring it to this podcast sometime in the near future because if you have not been able to enjoy us live and in person at Comic Con, you can at least hear us. I just like to point out, by the way, that 20 years of Starship SmackDown, 20 years is enough time for Star Trek to become Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh my God. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> That's, You're welcome. <laughs> that's a long time. Would that cost a joke? 
(laughs) (laughs) And it's amazing because even though we've lost, not literally lost people, but people have fallen by the wayside, it's mostly the original lineup. You know, we still have like, uh, you know, Richard Dawson and we have, uh, you know, we, 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 you know, we have everybody. We got Bill Cullen. We yeah, got, we got Bill uh, Cullen. We got uh, what was that? Brett Summers. We got all the all the originals. So although Kay is not coming this year, that's true. So I'm very disappointed. But 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 uh, we will I don't have. Know what uh, that says about us, Mark. <laughs> I don't know, Rob. But I mean, Rob you, will be there. Dan, you, myself, Chris. What's Gossett, even worse is if you we live to be 80, that means 25 percent of our lives was spent doing starships. Was spent doing starships, yelling about starships, yelling at the clouds. No, look, you know what? Here's the thing. Onion on my belt. A lot of people talk about starships, but people, very few people are as highly credentialed as we are That's in true. terms of being um, uh, spaceshipologists. So when you come to the SmackDown, you can expect only the most, you know, upscale, cerebral, uh, 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 you know, discussion, debate, you know, at a very rarefied level. So um, although we hope I think- you'll join us. You know, we haven't done Starship Smackdown in uh, a couple of years because of COVID. Yeah. I never worried. I never ever thought that I could be canceled because of some of my Starship Smackdown commentary, but I very well. This could, could be, be the year you're canceled. I could be finally canceled and run out of town. Well, you know, it's funny because we had a panelist, I'm not going to name names, who who uh, who said to me, yeah, I just, um, I can't do this panel anymore. I said, why not? I don't like the way that you talk about things. <laughs> And it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, you guys, you're just, you know, you're just um you're just mean and cruel and uh and uh <laughs> is that true? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could probably guess who it was. Yeah, it was not a Gen Xer. It it was uh yes, it was a millennial. Yes. And and lovely, uh, lovely guy. I have nothing yep. but respect for, but it was it was bullshit. But 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 isn't that interesting that that again? I mean, Starship Smackdown, if nothing else, is supposed to be funny and put a smile on your face. Suppose- Look, if we're not pushing the envelope, we're not doing our job. Right. That's that's how I feel about it. Now, there's certain things we can't do. I mean, we can't, we can't, we can't. Uh, you know, and I understand. I mean, Comic Con, you know, saying people can't bring alcohol up on the table and you imbibe it in the front. Totally get that. And Mark, and they very cool. have to say fuck so much. Very, very cool yeah. about that. I understand. You know, they have issues with. Uh, Chris Gossett, you know, throwing uh, chocolate chip cookies out into this field's <laughs> cookies into crap. I got it. They're very respectful. They approached me and said, Mark, we love you. This can't happen again. I got it. Won't happen again. But, you know, we're going to say what we say because we are the space apologists. And we've been doing this for 20 freaking years. The panel and- is the panel. What can be done? <laughs> <laughs> so if you haven't experienced Tertius Smackdown, I, I hardly It's original you- Klingon. We were very lucky to have people like Neil deGrasse Tyson drop by in the past and share their uh, their thoughts. And I'm sure we'll have uh, other people you know, who might drop by this year. Um, but uh, even if they don't. We'll be there. We'll be there. We'll be there. And you never know what's Since your next. sun burned hot in the sky. Apparently. I have awaited a star. And dreaded it. Oh, no, that's Planet of the Apes. <laughs> I've oh, awaited right, your arrival but- and dreaded it. Yeah, maybe we'll be canceled this year. What are you afraid of, Doctor? <laughs> but uh, an ape make a human doll who talks? Yes. About we, starships? We make I don't dolls think so. talk. Why wouldn't they? Why would, no, it doesn't make any sense. 
That's fine. Makes, makes no um, sense. Makes no sense. Yeah, we'll, we'll find Cage. out. This what could a way be to freaking this go. This could be it for Rob this year. Let's see. <laughs> yeah, I got to tone it down. No, you don't. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> no, you don't. No, Starship Smackdown <laughs> is one place you don't need to tone it down. <laughs> it's true. Um, People already hate me anyway. <laughs> anyway, we'll see you there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. July we'll see 24. you there. Uh, we want to thank you for joining us for this episode of Inglorious Strikes. This was an interesting one. I, you know, I was, I was, we really, we just a little off the, um, off the path for us. We went a little off-road trekking, kind of like a nemesis um, with the. <laughs> I don't know what's worse. Okay, this is, I'm going to leave you with this. So, what's worse, Picard in 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 that off-road vehicle in 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 um, in Nemesis? Or or Chris Pine riding the motorcycle in Star Trek Beyond, uh, the off road vehicle. The off road yeah. vehicle. Yeah. Okay. Because I can totally see Shatner riding a motorcycle. Yep. <laughs> okay. Uh, there you I go. think Tallulah prefers Chris Pine. All right. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing's for sure in Picard season three, I doubt we'll see um, Picard off road racing again. Maybe like in a little golf cart. Oh, I will find the Or like one of those little scooters that people ride around. Have you seen those, Marty? Oh, don't start with the, the scooters. The Picard Mobile golf cart that is basically. <laughs> the Picard Mobile. The, the Bob Hope cart repainted. You remember me on the Stargazer and the USS Enterprise? Now <laughs> I drive the Picard Mobile. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, my God. Join okay, well, listen, time. Rob, Ashley, so glad to have you back with us. Want to thank Mark Rivera, who's been doing such a wonderful job. What a what a delight that Greg Jean episode. Uh, I, the way you use the the clips and everything. Thank you for that, Bill Ritter. Thank you, Peter Holmstrom. Uh, always uh, doing a great job, our producer Nellie Miscali. And uh, of course, you, our audience, who's been saying such nice things on the internet, uh, uh, Inglorious Trek at Twitter, Inglorious Trek Express at Instagram and Facebook. And of course, you can rate us five stars wherever you listen to uh, podcasts. Although you may not want to after this week's episode. I don't know. I don't know. We may get some more nasty mail. But, um, you know, as I always say, okay, them's the breaks. So, you know, if you don't put yourself out there. You're not out there. You're not out there. You you don't get any mail. You're alone because nobody's responding. Nobody cares what you think. So (laughs) I don't even know what's going on. I haven't had dinner. I'm hungry. What can I say? Um, But we we hope to see you at at San Diego Comic-Con. Everybody's going to be there. Rob will entertain you. He'll take you to bars. He'll show you a good time. I will not talk to you, but Rob will make up for it. I talk to everybody. Rob will, take Rob will talk to everybody. He'll make you feel like you're <laughs> his best friend. And, That's when the uh, world is new. Wonderful conversations. And I want to put the opinions expressed by Rob to you uh, in the bar. Do not represent those of the podcast. He's his own man. He can say what he wants. It has nothing to do with drug experts. So, um, and Darren will be there and, and happy to be there and I'm give you a smile and a hearty farewell. And uh, a laurel and hearty handshake. <laughs> a laurel and hearty handshake. <laughs> and I'll wave at you from afar. Uh-huh. And particularly with the pandemic, I don't want to shake hands. It's no reflection on you. I, I don't want I don't want anybody to come within 10 feet of me. Are yeah, you into hugs? You you did that with no hugs. Hand. I don't want hugs. I don't want handshakes. No, I don't want any I don't want the galactic handshake where you know you reach up halfway across the arm. I, I just, you know, like you can give a little like dainty wave. Oh, that would be fine. <laughs> Okay, so anyway, Darren's leaving for Ticonderoga. Thank you all. And until next time, keep on trekking. And gloriously, of course.
This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.